Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 John. We've been studying 1 John. We're in chapter 4, 1 John 4, 1 to 6. Let's ask God to guide our time. Dear Lord, we confess that you are God, that you are great, that you are all-knowing. We confess that your word is inspired. It's God-breathed. It's inerrant. It's without error. It's given to us that we might know what to believe, that we might know you, that we might know how to rightly respond to you, living as acts of worship for your glory and our betterment. We ask, Father, that as you take this text that you gave John for us, that you would impart it to our heads, our hearts, our lives, that we would be transformed and changed for your great glory and our betterment. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. When I graduated from graduate school, Betty Ann and I moved down near Houston, closer to Galveston. We had never lived in that part of the country, and so we got to know some new critters. Now we went down there to join with a small group of Christ followers who had had a church that was really on life support, needed some new energy, some new life. And so they actually had a building and they had a parsonage, but they really didn't have people. They didn't much have a church. But we had critters. And Betty Ann and I got to know some of the critters that exist in Houston. I remember in my office, it was elevated. Lots of things are on stilts there. We had a pack of rats. The rats had eaten their way through the floorboard, through the carpet, into my office. One would think it would be easy to get rid of rats, but it is not. They would come at night and they would leave before I got there in the morning. And it really took about six months to get rid of this pack of rats that made its home in my office. Another set of critters, bugs really, that we got to know were roaches. No matter how clean your house is, in that part of the country, roaches show up. You could have a palatial mansion, you could live in a small house, you could have rich, you could have poor. Roaches love, they were equal opportunity tenants. I remember we got tired of the roaches and Betty Ann and I were heading back east for a week and I thought, I'm going to take care of these roaches. I'm going to get roach bombs and I'm going to put them in every room in the parsonage and I'm going to let them off. And usually an hour or two later, you would clean it up. But I thought, no, no, we're going to wipe them out. I'm going to set a bomb off in every room. And I'm going to allow the poison to permeate our house for the entire week that we are gone. Victory. It took out all the roaches. But then a few months later in the roach community, the roaches got together. They talked about it and noted that our house was roach-free and that would not do, and so they came back in. The house that we lived on, which is where the church was, was a five-acre property. It was kind of willy and woolly. It was kind of a rough area, really kind of wild. And where we had the shed that kept the lawnmower 
we had an entire family of water moccasins live under the shed. Now, I'm not the brightest knight or light in the drawer, the sharpest knife, uh, but you know, a group of moccasins versus a young pastor, I think moccasins win. So every time I would be very careful when I get the lawnmower that I would not disturb the moccasins. They could have their life, I would have mine. The last set of critters, which were really bugs, were fire ants. If you've lived in the South, you've experienced fire ants. They can be quite dangerous. In fact, if a young child stepped on a nest and did not remove himself, or even a young calf, it's possible, very rare, but it's possible they could lose their life because fire ants are just very violent creatures. And they're actually resistant to most pesticides. But scientists have developed some pellets that are made of fire ants' favorite food with a little bit of poison. And so the worker ants would take the pellets and bring it back into the nest. They would feed the queen, and eventually the queen would die, which eventually would cause the fire ant nest to die. No more ants. We'll see what happened. They brought poison in, and the poison spread, and the poison caused destruction. I think that's John's concern. In fact, John would say that the world has already come into the church, and from within the church, there's destruction as the people disseminate false teachings and then even leave the church. That is John's concern in 1 John chapter 4, 1 to 6. Let me read it to us, and as I do, let me note that the word spirit, pneuma, is particularly tricky in this text. John uses the same word about a half a dozen different ways. So I'm going to try and define it for us as I read the text. Beloved, that is Christ's follower, do not believe every spirit. Here he's not referring to the Holy Spirit, he's referring to the talk of the town. False doctrines or even true doctrines. He's saying test those spirits. Make sure it's from God, not from the world. Don't believe every spirit. Don't believe everything you hear. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Now he's talking about the Holy Spirit. By this you know that it comes from the Holy Spirit. Now every spirit, he's talking about a person. Every person that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit, now he's talking about a person who happens to be an unbeliever, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Now he's talking about what permeates society, political correctness or wokeness, or some of these other tenets and he says, test them, make sure they're from God. And if they're not from God, you reject them. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, Christ followers, you are from God and have overcome them. For he, God, who is in you, is greater than he, Satan, and the spirit of Antichrist, things that come from Satan, who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We would expect that. 
We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, of truth, and the Spirit of error, that which comes from the Antichrist and Satan, that which is not biblical. As you and I begin, verse 1 reminds us that we need to evaluate what is being taught. We need to make sure that what is being taught is from God. I would argue that over the last 18 months, there has been more said, spoken, taught, podcast, written, purportedly from God, that may not be totally from God than at any other time that I can recall in 30 years of pastoring. People are up in arms and they're mixing politics and faith and they're mixing their own convictions and faith and, and they're taking verses out of context and proof texting and, and topically giving us messages that don't even come from the, the sense of the text itself. I've never seen this before. People are saying, hey, the end is near. I read and listen to several podcasts that say Jesus will return before we get to 2021. They're lucky they're not in the Old Testament. We stone those kind of false prophets. I've known of, don't know personally, but I've known of several people in our area that have divested themselves of their retirement fund because they're so certain that Jesus will return by the end of 2021. As though we haven't been warned over and over again in Scripture that no one knows the day or the time, not even the angels in heaven, or even the Son of Man here on earth, but only our Father who is in heaven. And yet we continue to date set, and we continue to listen to people who date set. I've gotten lots of podcasts from you all with individuals who have been named as the Antichrist. By the way, I don't think the Antichrist is revealed until we're actually in the tribulation, the seven years of Revelation 6 to 18. And yet names have been dropped numerous times, both present and past presidents, including Republican and Democrat, present and past politicians, Republican and Democrat. At least one doctor has been mentioned prominently many times. Several billionaires have been mentioned. And they're not even talking about the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist is alive from the time of John until the time when Christ returns and even through the tribulation. The spirit of Antichrist is false teaching, false doctrine that comes from Satan that attempts to lead people away, even the elect if it were possible. But the Antichrist, I don't think, is someone who is revealed until we're in the tribulation and we're not there yet. And so to identify people as the Antichrist, I think is dangerous. To say that certain people teach the spirit of Antichrist, I think is accurate and true. I think we need discernment. Many of you have such incredible discernment. But we need discernment when we listen to podcasts, when we listen to sermons. When we listen to Bible studies, when we listen to Sunday school lessons, when we read books, even coming out of a church library, when we go to conferences, 
One of the challenges I have with conferences, whether it be the IF conference or no regrets, is I know, I know that what will take place at every conference will not be exactly what I think is true. I've never been to a conference where I agree with every word or with every speaker. It just doesn't occur. One of the reasons we don't have outside speakers at Highland is because I want to make sure that what is taught here is biblically sound. I can't do that with conferences, but I believe with all my heart that we get more benefit from the IF conference, more benefit from the No Regrets conference than detriment, even though I know that some things will be said that I don't agree with, that I don't think is biblically sound. And that's where discernment comes in. When you and I read books, when we listen to podcasts, when we listen to Jeff preach or other preachers, we need discernment to know, is this from Scripture? Is this true? Have I violated a tier one doctrine, something to do with the Godhead, something to do with salvation by faith in Christ alone, something to do with inerrancy or inspiration? Have I violated a tier two doctrine, something that's pretty important but not central to our faith? Or is there a violation of a tier three that we can have great fellowship, but we're going to be convicted in our heart that we understand it more correctly than someone else? And we listen and we learn with discernment. And I would say in the last 18 months, there have been more podcasts, books, articles written that lack discernment than at any time that I can recall. What does the text say? Beloved, Jeff, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. We need to test the Spirit. The word test, dicosimo, is a word that means to discern, to examine. We need book, chapter, and verse. Look at what the Word of God says compared to what has been said. And do they line up? Do they square one with another? It wasn't that long ago, uh, maybe a half a year ago or so, I was visiting my parents. And I visit my parents in Florida. They have a home in Florida for the winter. And so I was visiting my parents, and I always go to church with them. They go to an outstanding church. And then after the church service, they go to a Sunday school class. And it's an interesting Sunday school class because I grew up in New York, and this is in Florida, and a half a dozen or more of the attenders in that Sunday school class, my parents' age, were from the church that we all were in in New York. And so they know me and they follow me through my parents. And they often listen on podcasts to my sermons. And so I walk in there and they kind of think like they know me really well and I can kind of recognize them, but I haven't seen them in a long time. And so we talk in the Sunday school class and and I have a little self-rule. I think it's obnoxious for a pastor up north to come into a Sunday school class in Florida and speak. So I always say to myself, Jeff, don't say anything. It's my rule. But this last time, oh man, it was hard. Because I heard two very distinct things said, one twice and the other one time, that were wrong. And I knew they were wrong. And nobody else was speaking up, and oh boy, it was tough. 
one gal, she was from California, I didn't know her. She said that the closer we get to the time of Christ, the return of Christ, the better the world is going to get. That's a view called post-millennialism. After World War I and World War II and the Cold War, nobody holds the post-millennialism. Besides, Scripture doesn't hold the post-millennialism. Scripture tells us the closer we get to the return of Christ, the worse things are going to get. Listen to the Olivet Discourse. I'm going to read it from Mark. I'm going to actually be preaching the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, which is the end times in July and August. Listen to Mark. Mark 13, 22 and 23. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on your guard. I have told you these things beforehand. And part of the Olivet Discourse tells us that the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more false Christ, the more false teaching, the more false prophets, the worse things are going to get. And this woman twice, twice said, hey, the closer we get to the return of Christ, the better things are going to get. And nobody said a word. And I bit my tongue. Because I have that rule. And then another guy said, as long as a marriage is legal, it's acceptable to God. And I could no longer bite my tongue. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 7, 1 says, make sure you are equally yoked within a marriage. If you're a believer, don't marry an unbeliever. If you're a mature believer, don't marry an immature believer. Be equally yoked. And also, God is very clear all the way back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that a biblical marriage is between a man and a woman. Our laws allow something beyond that. But God does not. So just because it's legal does not mean it's godly. What does John tell us? He says, test the spirit. So in that particular case, I spoke up. I thought that was detrimental to everyone listening if nobody would speak up and speak the truth. John tells us, test the spirits. Test to make sure they're pure, they're true. This word test was often used in examining metals. Now, I'm not initiated. I don't know anything about what I'm about to say. But I understand it's difficult to tell the difference between pure gold and pyrite, which is fool's gold. Sometimes experts are needed to tell the difference between the two, especially if you get a nugget out of a river that is known for both pyrite and gold. It's hard to tell the difference. That's what this word was used for. It was used to tell the purities or the impurities of metals. I've been told, don't know if this is true, but I've been told that in the 1600s, one English ship captain actually brought in an entire shipload of pyrite, fool's gold, thinking it was real gold. I suspect if that's true, he got an earful. I kind of wonder, is that what Shakespeare was referring to in the Merchant of Venice when he said, all that glitters is not gold. And I want to say to us, all that glitters today is not gold. We have lots of things that glitter in society that are not true. They are not biblical. They are not right. 
what might some of these be? Someone might say, you know what? I don't need a piece of paper to declare my love for who I'm living with as a defense of cohabitation. And yet I don't believe that cohabitation squares at all with Genesis 1, Genesis 2 and 3, 1 Corinthians 6, and a host of other scriptures. All that glitters is not gold. We live in a day and age where people say, I get to choose my own pronoun. And yet in Genesis 1, 27, it says God made them male and female. God chose the pronoun. We live in a day and age where people say it's my body. I have the right to do with my body as I want as a defense of abortion. And yet in Psalm 139, 13 to 16, it says God is in the womb fashioning the child. God takes responsibility for the child and it is not her body. It's different DNA. Or someone would say, you know, all religions... They really talk about the same God. It doesn't really matter what faith you're of. But Acts 4, 12 says, And there is no other name by which you are saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord are saved. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ. All that glitters is not gold. John says, Jeff, test the spirits. There are a lot of false teachings, false teachers, prophets in the world today. Now verses 2 and 3 taken out of context might seem to be incorrect. Because John seems to make a blanket statement. If a teacher says that Jesus has come in the flesh, then he's a Christian. But we know that a false teacher can actually make that statement. A false teacher could say Jesus comes in the flesh and still be a false teacher. But John is talking about a very specific context, a very specific time. He's writing to the church at Ephesus around AD 90, a church that has proto-Gnosticism incipient inside the church. Gnosticism taught that salvation is not by faith in Jesus Christ alone, which is what the Bible insists. Gnosticism says salvation, everlasting life, comes through knowledge. Gnosis, knowledge. And in fact, the type of Incepient proto-Gnosticism that was in Ephesus in around AD 90 was docetism from the Greek word dokeo. It appears. And what they were teaching is Jesus only appeared to be in the flesh, but no real God would ever be in the flesh because part of what they taught Gnosticism is that the body is evil. So no God would really be in flesh. So Jesus only appeared to come in flesh. He didn't come in flesh. Think of the implications of that. If Jesus did not come in the flesh, if Jesus did not bodily die, the penal substitutionary atonement, him paying the penalty of our sin and appeasing the righteous wrath of God for sin didn't happen You are dead in your trespasses. You are lost forever. You are eternally separated from God and so am I. That's the macro level of the damage of Gnosticism. The micro level is if the body is evil, the Gnostics said, you know what? Your body is not eternal, only your soul. So whatever you do with your body, it doesn't matter if it feels good, do it. There's lots of people who embrace that today. 
But you remember in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us, not only is the soul spirit eternal, but at the trumpet sound, the body will be raised, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. And then what is temporal will be raised immortal, 1 Corinthians 15. So what we do with our body matters. So John is talking to a specific situation where no false teacher of Gnosticism would ever say, Jesus is in the flesh. But let's take it out of that exact context and apply the principle to a broader context. The principle is this. Weigh what is taught. Measure what is taught against the word of God. In fact, notice in the text the phrase from God is found six times in six verses. It's found in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, and twice in verse 6. The implication is huge. What matters to John is that what is taught squares with the word of God so that we can declare it is from God. And if it's not from God, take it with a grain of salt if it's opposed to God, run from it because we want to be transformed. We want to be changed. We want to be impacted with what is from God. That's what verse 4 is all about. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he, God, is greater than he, Satan and the spirit of Antichrist, who is in the world. This gives us courage. This gives us courage to stand against false teachings. Nobody wants to be called a bigot. Nobody wants to be called an angry separatist. And sometimes we deserve that by the way we handle ourselves, the lack of grace. But to stand for truth, biblical truth, with grace is to imitate Christ. And it gives us courage that ultimate truth was, is with the Lord. And one day when God rights all wrongs, if we have stood with God, we will totally, completely, fully be on the side of truth. So again, we need to embrace truth. We need to ask the question, where is it written? In fact, that's the question, probably more than any other, that brought the Evangelical Free Church together in 1950. Where is it written? Where's the book? Where's the chapter? Where's the verse? If you're going to tell me this is true, where is it written? That's the question. John says in verses 5 and 6, he makes this statement to us. 1 John 4, 5 and 6. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. What is being taught in society. I'd like to conclude with just a few broad thoughts. The first is this. When we listen to a podcast, 
when we listen to a sermon, when we listen to a Bible study, when we read a book, when we read an article, it can be really fancy, it can be well delivered, but we need to ask, where is it written? You remember Acts 17, 11, and it says there were Jews that were more noble than the Thessalonians because they listened to Paul. They received the word with eagerness. They, they examined the scriptures to see if what was said is true. Think about that. This is mind-blowing. Paul, that's the dude. Paul is preaching to them. The guy who wrote more books carried along by God's spirit than anyone else in the Bible. Paul is preaching to them. And what did they do? They listened to Paul with eagerness. They weren't trying to get him, gotcha, catch him. No, no, no. They listened with eagerness. But then they compared what the dude, what Paul said, to the word of God. And we say, whoa, man, if I had Paul, I'd be writing everything down, reams and notes. If he said it, I would take it as truth, inerrant, but it's not. Thirteen books that God's Spirit carried them along, 2 Peter 1.21, those are inerrant. But when Paul preached, what he said as he expounded upon Scripture was not inerrant. Scripture was inerrant. When he expounded upon it, undoubtedly he said false things. And so they were more noble, even with Paul in the pulpit. Because they compared what he said to the word of God. And that's what you, I, we are called to do. Second, and related. I think we have to be most careful with preachers, teachers, that we do not know their character. We listen to them from a distance. I'm not saying we shouldn't. We need to be more careful. You remember in 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15, it says, and no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as angels of light. When we don't know the character and the lifestyle of the person who is teaching us in Sunday school or, or preaching or the book we're reading or the podcast we're listening to, if we don't know the character, I'm not saying we shouldn't read it, we shouldn't listen, we just need to be more careful because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. I think the most dangerous is not a wildly heretical book, a wildly heretical sermon, a wildly heretical podcast. That's not all that dangerous. What's really dangerous is a 60-40, a 70-30, 70% true, 30% Heresy, untruth, because it lowers our guard when we hear truth. We need to discern. Third, I think there's a very unfortunate divide in our country between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Some individuals are driven by impressions. God spoke to my heart. God's directing me. I'm not denying that. He does that to me. But we will never, we will never suffer loss if we compare the impressions 
and leading the prompting of God's Spirit to the Word of God. In fact, we are fools if we don't do that. When God impresses something upon my heart, I think the next step is to find book, chapter, and verse that suggests this is from God or this isn't from God. Can you prove all impressions that way? No, but you can disprove a lot of them and you can validate a lot of them. We should never separate the Spirit of God and the Word of God. They work in concert. They both come from God's Spirit. And so when I feel an impression, a direction, a step from the Lord, I want to find book, chapter, and verse that says, yes, this is from God. The final application perhaps is not that apparent in the text. The application would go like this. God never intended for people to have individual house churches where their family gathers and that's church. I know some do it. It is out of step with all of Scripture. You may not be aware of this, but all the pronouns in today's text are plural. All the pronouns embedded in the verbs of today's text are plural. Because John believes that the best way that we can combat allowing false doctrine into our hearts and our lives is that we sharpen one another. As iron sharpens iron, so we sharpen one another. And we do this in concert as a church. There are 60 different one another passages in the New Testament. All of them presuppose that we are in the body of Christ. People say, well, the early church met in homes. It was home churches. Yeah, but it wasn't a family. It was a bunch of families, and it had some formality. You can see that in First and Second Timothy and Titus and First Peter. Hebrews 10.25 says, do not forsake the assembly of the saints as some are in the habit of doing. Every epistle in the New Testament is written to a local church body, never to a small house church where it's a family or two. The entirety of the New Testament, the weight of the New Testament is that we gather as believers and we sharpen one another and we hold each other accountable. We spur one another on in love and good deeds. And we hold each other accountable to the truths, the doctrines, the theologies, the orthopraxy, the living out of Scripture. And in that way, we test the spirits. Well, let's pray. Father God, help us be wise, to be discerning, to test the spirits of our age, to see what comes from you and what does not, to be driven towards what is truth from you, and to live out that truth with ruthless obedience and yet grace towards others. Father, help us to live lives that bring glory to your name. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.